Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Uh, With that, I'd like to invite Roger up to read our text this morning. And there he is. (laughs) So please welcome Roger. Thank you. Psalm 23 in the New King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you, my friend. Father, we pray again just as we sang, that you would be exalted today. We choose now to turn our attention your direction, and we want to see you high and lifted up, and we want to see you more clearly, to get a grand, a massive view, a clear view of you, who you are, and then what you promise to provide for us. So paint a grand picture for us. Be exalted right now in this moment and in our gathering. And God, not just for us to see, but in our own lives. We want you in the highest place and position. As we see you clearly as high and lifted up, may you be just that in our lives. May you be the one who presides and resides over all things. God, speak to us. Bring this beautiful piece of poetry to life for us to not just hear things that are true or helpful, but to see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've always loved the Psalms of David. And for me, it's, it's because I just find them really intriguing because you can follow David's story through First and Second Samuel and learn all about what he did and even what he endured, but you're left to question what he actually thought or what even he felt. We're not allowed into his mind or his emotions while we follow the narrative of his life, but the Psalms change that, don't they? The Psalms allow us to see that it wasn't just David's life that was up and down, but his emotions followed with it. Even some of his convictions seemed at times to be shaken by some of the things that he faced in life where he's beginning to question what he thinks about the goodness of God. But then you follow those Psalms and his emotions to where he finds himself settled again and again on the goodness of God and his presence and commitment to him. You see, I think one of the most intriguing looks that we get into the mind and heart of David, though, is found in what Roger just read to you from Psalm 23. And one of the things that makes it so peculiar and interesting is that God in this little piece of poetry, he's presented to you as a shepherd. And then for you, or David using himself here in this moment, he is the sheep under that shepherd's care. 
And so if you've ever looked at an animal and wondered what they're thinking because of their peculiar look, well, wonder no more because David lifts the veil and explains to us, gets us into the mind of a sheep. In fact, if you could use your imagination a bit, you'd picture a little sheep sitting down at a desk and beginning to tap away on a keyboard and begin to write a blog because that's really what this functions as. This is a sheep's blog about the wonderful care that they're receiving from their shepherd, from their master. And although we could have entitled this series Sheep Blog, instead, to my disappointment, we landed on My Good Shepherd, which is still good, just not as good. But what we're going to do is spend four weeks looking through this amazing, beautiful gift. In fact, this is a famous passage in Scripture, maybe even the most well-known piece of Scripture from all of the Bible. And it's a psalm, this piece of poetry, that's helped people to live and to die with hope and peace for the past 3,000 years as people have chosen to follow the God of the Bible. And this beautiful, God-breathed piece of poetry penned by King David. Remember that long before David was a king, though, he was an often overlooked, just humble shepherd. He was not born into prominence or into royalty. He lived in obscurity. You might remember the story that a prophet would come to his family's house because God had led him there to find the next king. And his dad thought so little of his son, David, who was out tending to just a few sheep that he didn't even call him in to stand before the prophet until the prophet says, well, don't you have any other sons? Because it's none of the ones that are before me. And then David was brought in. And, and you, you might remember, and, and let's not over-glamorize this, it was very simple, very humble what David's task and duty was because we find him presiding over a little flock of sheep, just a simple shepherd, and we find out over time he's also a frustrated musician, and you start to see that he's like the old-school, prehistoric, original form of a pizza delivery guy because his dad's sending him out on errands, taking a wagon full of cheese to his brothers who are out on the battlefield, remember, sitting there watching Goliath come every day to mock them. And when he comes, he's accused of rubbernecking by his brothers. They say, you just came to gawk and to look. You just came to look in on what's happening here. Oh, shouldn't you be with your little flock of sheep, your few sheep, they mockingly said. It wasn't an impressive flock, nor an impressive job or position that David held, but we know that David loved his sheep and his position as their caretaker. And before you disagree with me and say, well, how do you know that he really loved the job or loved the sheep? Well, let me remind you of what he said about the job that he did taking care of those sheep. Remember, he tells us in his narrative that there was a time when a lion came and even when a bear came after his little flock and he stood his ground and was able to fight off those massive wild animals. He loved his sheep. In fact, saying that feels like an understatement. You might say you love a good burger. You might even say that you love your car. But if you're out on a camping trip and a bear or a lion shows up sniffing at the good burger that's sitting inside your car, I would venture to guess that you wouldn't stand there to defend your car and your love for it or to stand there and defend the burger that was hidden inside of it. You'd throw the keys and run just like the rest of us. But David was so different. He loved these sheep. And for us, as we read his illustration of God being a shepherd and me being a sheep in his care, I'll just tell you, there's nothing inside me that's leaping for joy at that imagery. I mean, I I look at the story and I wonder, couldn't I have been some precious jewel and he be the treasure hunter who's seeking for the jewel? Well, yes, that does happen in scripture, but not in this story. Or or we wonder, couldn't we be the the bride that the the fiance longs to be with and to rescue and make his own? 
Well, yes, we can be that, and we are that, but not here, not in this story. We will be later in the story. But here, we're just a simple sheep, and he, our shepherd. But please hear me, when David draws this analogy in comparison, he's really drawing on the deepest and sweetest comparisons that could come to mind. Remember, he loved these sheep enough that he was willing to potentially die for them. I might read the story and think of sheep and just think these are nasty, dumb, smelly animals. I went to the Poway Rodeo a month ago. Don't judge me. But when I was there, they brought some sheep out and they put some kids on the back of it. They call it mutton busting. They let the sheep run around. And and then when they buck the kid off, they let the sheep roam around. Watching those animals, there was nothing awe-inspiring about that moment. None of us have ever been in a restaurant or a grocery store and seen someone come in with their, their aid animal, their seeing eye sheep. Like you don't train sheep to do things that humans need to depend on. We've never heard of something like that. I see dumb, smelly animals. In fact, our culture and society in the last couple of years, we started throwing the, the title and the insults at people who saw things different than we did. We'd refer to them as sheeple, people who dumbly, blindly followed the masses. It's how so many people on each side of things were hurling insults back and forth. That's how we think of sheep. But he looked and saw, David did, when he thought of sheep, he saw beautiful creatures that were in desperate need of his nurturing care. When he's explaining that God is like a shepherd, he's talking about someone who'd look your direction and see a beautiful creature that were in desperate need of his nurturing care. And this morning, as we start our little journey through Psalm 23, we're really just going to look at his opening statements, that very first line, where David simply says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, it's tricky because in scripture, we don't have the tone of the voice. We have to read the tone of someone's voice into the text because the tone is not included in it. And so we can read the statement and wonder and question is what we're meant to hear almost a questioning tone in David's voice where he's asking, the Lord, is he my shepherd? But it's not what he says, is it? We can wonder if it's, if it's just a statement that's mumbled off the lips of a defeated man where he simply mumbles and quietly is heard saying, the Lord, he, he's, he's my shepherd and I, I shouldn't want we can question, we can wonder, but the statement that he's making here is something he's boasting of. He's bragging in this moment about some amazing reality that's something that's true about himself that he didn't even procure for himself. He's saying the amazing thing worth boasting about is that the Lord is my shepherd. He's responsible for my care, and because of that, I shall not be found in one. David's calling you to consider the one that's responsible for his care and wants you to think about the one responsible for your care too. Your shepherd, the caregiver in whom you can depend on, he's saying is the Lord. And David knew very well as a shepherd himself that the quality of the sheep was completely contingent upon the quality of the care and the character of their shepherd. If the sheep were going to be healthy and well, it was because the shepherd was attentive and affectionate towards them. So who is this shepherd? Well, he says it's the Lord. It's, it's the personal name for God used again and again in the Old Testament scriptures. It's Yahweh himself, the God of the Jews. And if Yahweh is my shepherd, then I need to know something of his character. If this is who I'm to trust as my shepherd, then I ought to be certain of his ability. 
There's a great book that we put on our resource table for you as a recommendation this last month. It's entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's written by Philip Keller. He was once a shepherd, then turned to pastor and wrote a great book about his observations out uh, taking care of sheep in the field. And he writes about the importance of us knowing the character and ability of our shepherd. And he points out, because under one man's care, sheep could struggle and starve and suffer endless hardship, whereas under another man's care, those same sheep, if cared for by someone else, they could thrive and feel contented and at rest. So if we're to know about our shepherd, then we've got to ask three questions this morning, and this is what we'll be doing for the next few minutes. Three questions we'll ask and answer. The first is, is he qualified to be my shepherd? But then the second is, is there a cost involved? Qualified is the first, but cost involved is the second, and then a benefit involved is the third. Is he qualified to be my shepherd? Is there a cost in him being my shepherd? And is there a benefit to him being my shepherd? So first this, is he qualified? If David is boasting and bragging, saying the Lord is my shepherd and I'm supposed to feel compelled that I want to find myself under that shepherd's care too, then I've got to know first, is he qualified? Psalm 95 verse seven says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You know, a shepherd by definition is someone who's preoccupied with the care of another. In the same book, this Bible that makes the request that I be a person who would trust God takes the time to patiently reveal his great power and loving character so that I'm capable of doing just that, of trusting him. Please hear me, the one that David is boasting of right here, that he's my shepherd, he's massive and he's deeply personal. He's massive. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40 says that God can hold the universe in the span of his hand. The idea, the imagery is that God is so big and capable that everything that's so vast and overwhelming for us is so small and simple for him. And here's the truth. You may have arrived here this morning where you look at your life and the, the challenges that you face, the problems you're dealing with, they're huge and they're massive. They're overwhelming. But pause for a second and take a deep breath and remember just how big your God is. In fact, to help me to remind you of this, I asked one of uh, the people in our church, his name's Zach Andrews, who's he's a designer, but also he's a card-carrying astro nerd. I asked him to help me put together some visuals to help paint a big picture and a clear and accurate one of God. So look towards the screens. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I used to lay on my back in the grass beside our house. And I remember I would just look up towards the clouds and I get that weird sensation that you're afraid that you're like going to detach from the earth and fall into space, which was kind of a traumatizing experience. But what I also thought was I'd start to realize as I'd look up just how small I was and just how small the stressors that my family faced, just how small the problems as I thought of my future, that they really were, because the earth really is a, a massive, vast, unique, beautiful, even large place. In fact, the Earth is about 8,000 miles in diameter. We are nearly twice the size of Mars and still 300 miles greater in diameter than Venus. And although large to us and even large next to some of our near neighbors, the Earth is not very large in comparison to the rest of our solar system. I mean, check out the Earth in comparison to our sun. Our sun's diameter is 864,000 miles across, whereas Earth is just 8,000 miles across which means that if the sun were used as a giant piggy bank, you could put one million planet Earths inside of it, or if you crushed the Earth 
and broke it down just to gravel, which is a dark thought, I realize. But if you did that, you could fit about 1.3 million planet Earths inside the sun. The Earth, in the end, is just a tiny speck of dust next to our sun. And sure, the sun looks massive compared to the Earth, but not when compared to other planets like Sirius or Pollux or Arcturus. I mean, look at the sun in comparison to the star known as Sirius. Sirius is nearly 25 times more luminous than the sun. And then there's Pollux. It's actually visible from Earth because of its enormity. It's so massive. And then there's the monster known as Arcturus. These are huge monster planets, but my goodness, bigger than them all is Betelgeuse. It's a monster of a planet. The Earth, when you think about it, is large. It's pretty big in our perspective. It's over 24,000 miles in circumference to go around the whole thing. Jupiter is over 278,000 miles in circumference. It's huge, massive, in fact. The sun is over 2.7 million miles in circumference around it. It's so big, it's hard for us to, compre- or to comprehend. Betelgeuse is 675 million miles in circumference. That's how massive we're talking. And yet Betelgeuse isn't even half the size of Canis Majoris, which is the largest star Uh, that's in our galaxy, and yet we haven't left the neighborhood yet. We're we're still in our own galaxy. On September the 3rd of 2003, the Hubble Space Telescope began pointing a camera at a small area in the night sky. The area is about the tenth of the size of our full moon and appeared to be in the night sky, complete blackness with no stars visible to the naked eye at all in that area. So the Hubble Space Telescope It left its lens open for a period of four months, pulling in all of the light, extracting all the light from that little black region in the distant night sky to see what it might find. And this is what it ends up seeing after that four-month period. With each dot in this image believed to represent an entire galaxy and each galaxy containing up to one trillion stars inside of it, these were, emphasis on were, the most distant objects ever photographed more than 13 billion light years away until this summer. When NASA released photos that you probably saw in the news that were pretty amazing from the James Webb Telescope, this new technology allows us to look much further back in time than Hubble ever even could have imagined, nearly three times deeper into space than Hubble could. And that same patch of night sky that they say if you lifted a grain of sand up and held it an arm's distance towards the night sky, this is how small this little section is in our night sky. If you held a grain of sand up in your fingers... All that's obstructed by that grain of sand is what this lens was focused in on in this black area in our night sky. And it would, in just a day with this amazing technology, bring in this image. That same area now seen with greater clarity where you have a massive amount of different galaxies and distant places. During the presentation where these first images were released, Webb project scientist Jane Rigby said, for Webb, that's this telescope, there is no blank sky. Everywhere it looks, it sees distant galaxies. Most of these galaxies were invisible until now, though. One of its most impressive feats was that it spotted a galaxy nearly 35 billion light years away. Carl Sagan, the world-famous astronomer, he said this. He said, the total number of stars in the universe is greater than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of planet Earth. That is enough stars for every person alive on planet Earth to personally own approximately two trillion stars eat, 
each. And counting at a rate of 10 stars per second, it would take over 100 trillion years to count them all. And Carl Sagan made that quote before Hubble or this new telescope, the James Webb, were even invented or their technology even existed. The amazing thing is that Christ is the creator of all. And scripture says it's, he is the sustainer of all. Colossians says, by him all things consist. It literally is translated from Greek to Latin to English that all things are held together by him. Again, Isaiah says he measures it all in the span of his hand. It should impress us and amaze us. It should cause us to trust him. David would pen these words in Psalm chapter 8. He'd say, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, you've set them in their place. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you'd visit him? Who am I that you'd be concerned about me, that you'd care for me? I mean, when you slow down to think about all of this, isn't it unnecessary, silly, even foolish that I personally am so easily overwhelmed simply because something feels too big for me? That I freak out when I don't know what to do as if I forget that my God is so much bigger, my shepherd is so much more impressive, that he's massive. As if there's anything that he couldn't do to help me, as if he's too small to fix my problems or too weak to handle the things that I'm facing. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12. He said, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Think about it. Won't he also be attentive to the details of my life and yours? David's boasting, he's bragging, the Lord is my shepherd. But hang on a second. David, is he qualified? Oh, he's massive. But the beautiful thing is he's not just massive. He's also deeply personal. Because the infinite God would become finite. He'd become breakable and even broken for us. That's the story that you follow in a Bible. You see, our perception of God, of how he thinks and what he feels, dramatically changes because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' life, but also his willingness to suffer. Because the the cross will take the God that we need to be big enough to measure the universe in the span of his hands, and it will make him small enough and personal enough to place his arm around us when we suffer and gently whisper to us, I understand. I know what it's like. You see, when Jesus came, he became the visible expression of an invisible God. But when Jesus suffered, he not only paved the way for me to be forgiven and accepted by God, but he proved also that God understands me and draws near to me in my pain. Oh, David's bragging here, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, but David, is he qualified to be mine? Oh, he's massive, and yet simultaneously, he's so deeply personal. And some of us, we sell God short, that's the truth. We make him to be far less than he is. Some of us see him as some neglected senior citizen who's out in distant galaxies, waiting and hiding out in the corner, hoping to be noticed, waiting to see if anyone will pay attention to him, but that's not who we're speaking of. Author Dallas Willard, in a beautiful book called Life Without Lack, he said it this way. He says, once you begin to have an impression of who God truly is, everything else fades into insignificance. When the bountiful sufficiency of God and himself and the glorious realm of his kingdom are continuously brought before your mind, it puts everything else in its proper place and opens to us a life in which we find God more capable of supplying everything that we need. 
Oh, is he qualified to be my shepherd? What's the cost, though? That's the second thing. What's the cost, though, for him to be my shepherd? Is there a cost involved into, in him becoming my shepherd who's responsible for my care? When you think about it, there's a cost on both sides of it, isn't there? There's a cost on his side and on mine. The cost on his, when you think about it, is that the shepherd had to first be willing to become a lamb. The shepherd had to first be willing to be the lamb, the lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world, the sacrificial lamb. For me to be brought under that shepherd's care, Jesus had to first take my place under his condemnation. In Isaiah 53, it would say it this way. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off. He was put to death. He was executed from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. What's the cost? The cost for him to be my shepherd is that the shepherd first had to become a sacrificial lamb. He first had to be, for me to be brought under his care, he first had to go under condemnation that I had earned and deserved. That's what it cost him, but what does it cost me? Well, it requires that I willingly entrust myself over to his leadership and care, that I call him Lord of my life. And the truth is, for most of us, we love the imagery of like Jesus the lifeguard, Jesus the Savior, everybody's down with that. But most of us choke on and take issue with Jesus and our willingness to allow him to be more than just a savior or a lifeguard, but to allow him to be Lord of our life. That that is his rightful role, both what he demands and what he deserves. I mean, when you think about what David is saying here, David is not saying, I have a great shepherd. What he is saying is a great shepherd has me. For him to be my shepherd does not make him my possession it means that I am his possession. And I belong to him because he created me first and foremost. Psalm 100 verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I belong to him because he created me, but I also belong to him because he purchased me. He did not simply make you, he bought you, scripture says. And it it's tells you with so much clarity that you and I, we were expensive. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says that we were ransomed when he paid for us, not with silver and gold, but with his precious blood. Salvation might be free to me, but it would cost Jesus everything. It's why Jesus would stand in John 10 and say, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. You know, and it's amazing that for all of eternity, that's exactly how we see him, isn't it? We see him not just as a good shepherd for all of eternity. Revelation tells us that we see him as the lamb who was slain, who gave his life for his sheep. Forever we see him marred and, and bearing the scars that he endured by taking our place as the sacrificial lamb. You see, here's the, the point. If, if the sheep were simply a gift to the shepherd, we shouldn't, we couldn't be certain of their value to him 
nor could we be certain of the kind of care that he would provide for them, but they weren't a gift, they were purchased. And they were purchased at a great price. You see, the beauty of all of this is that God's the one who made himself David's shepherd. It's not David who somehow worked hard to secure this honor for himself. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel. That's the good news for all of us. It's not that I have to earn the right or deserve the fact that I could call God my good shepherd. I cannot find a way to earn or deserve that. I can't find a way to belong in that position, to be the recipient of his love and care. I can't do that. I've sinned and rebelled and disobeyed. And because of that, I've, I've led myself, like this Isaiah the prophet had said, that I've gone astray and wandered off. And what it's done is it's brought destruction in my own life and destruction in the lives of others. And it's severed my relationship with God. I can't procure this honor for myself of having him be my shepherd. The gospel tells me I never needed to because Jesus would take my place to secure the honor for me. Jesus would take all that's wrong and broken about me and pay for it. And at the same time, he would transfer to me all that was right and good about him, even his identity as the son. And he'd place that new identity on me and you as we choose to follow him. You see, this is the gospel that you don't have to earn your place under his watchful eye or loving care. It's the parable that Jesus told of of the one who was lost When others came to Jesus and said, why are you friends with those people, those kinds of people, those sinners? It's the cultural term that was used for people who had given up on trying to reach or please God at all. And they were bothered, the the religious people were, Jesus, why do you keep company with them? Jesus begins to redefine what lost looks like. Lost is not a waste. To Jesus, lost was something of value that needed to be found urgently. In fact, he defined it so beautifully when he said it's like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and when he gets back to the sheepfold at night, he's counting 99 but knows that he's missing one. And then he does this crazy move that's not economical, that doesn't make sense in our world where he leaves the 99 to pursue the one, risking loss, an awful lot of loss to pursue one lost dumb sheep. That when you look at a flock of 99 compared to one, where's your value system? Jesus, stay with these and and count your losses and let them go. But Jesus would pursue the lost one because of the value that he saw in them. That is the gospel. Not that I came back to the flock and said, hey, I'm here to earn my place. It's the story of the prodigal son. As the son is walking home, he says, and father, I will work hard. Don't make me a son, just a servant, but I will work hard to pay it off and then earn the right to be called your son again. And he wasn't truly home until the father's voice was louder than his own. When the father had shushed him and said, it will never be so. And the father provided then a covering to cover the filth and and the brokenness of his life, to, to hide even the consequence of his pain. The father would give his own cloak. The father would place his own signet ring on his hand, signifying that he was a full fledged member of that household. And the father would embrace him. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we're seeing David is talking about here. Oh, is he qualified? David's boasting. He is my shepherd, but is he qualified, David? I don't know that I want to sign up for this. Oh, he's massive and he's deeply personal. Oh, but but David, what's the cost? Oh, it cost him, the shepherd, to first become the sheep, the lamb of God, who take away the sin of the world to now become your shepherd. And yes, it'll cost you to choose to trust him, not just as a savior or a lifeguard, but as Lord of your life. 
But please notice Psalm 23 is not about your trust in God. The focal point is God's great commitment to you. That the creator of the universe became a sacrificial lamb so that he then could rescue you as a good shepherd. Oh, but the third and final thing, but what's the benefit of it all? Why does it even matter? Is there a benefit? What's the benefit of him being my shepherd? The benefit for me of knowing that the Lord is my shepherd is that I no longer have to stress about the details of my life because I recognize that it is now his responsibility to provide and care for me. I could illustrate it simply by telling you when Lindsay and I first bought our first house, we were so excited and, and so, so thrilled that first day we got the keys. But I tell you, selling the house was way more incredible and exciting than purchasing it was. Because what we purchased was a money pit and a serious fixer-upper. Listen, it was a great day when we sold it rather than when we bought it, a better day when we sold it than when we bought it, not just because money came into our account rather than going out of it, but because I no longer had to stress about the condition of that little fixer-upper. I was no longer the one responsible to make sure that the plumbing was functioning properly or, or it wasn't up to me to fix the constantly deteriorating irrigation system or to, it wasn't dependent upon me even to make sure that the old roof wasn't leaking anymore. I've even driven by that house a few times over the years since we moved away, and I've never once stopped and knocked on the door to ask if I could trim the hedges or fix the fence because someone else has purchased it. It belongs to another person now, which means that I can sleep free of stress and of worry about how I'm going to handle all the challenges of owning a fixer-upper. It's neither mine to maintain nor mine to worry about. Please hear me. Someone else took ownership and responsibility of it. And that's freeing. And do you understand that for you to have him as your shepherd means that you don't have to sweat the details because your provision and future are now his responsibility. So when your plans fall apart, you don't have to stress about where you'll go or what you'll do because your shepherd promises here that he'll lead you. When the relationship crumbles, your shepherd stands up providing, promising to provide what you'll need in that moment. When the doctor gives a scary prognosis, you know that your shepherd is present with you in every dark valley, even promising here to lead you through the darkest of valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death, that he'll lead you through it. And where you'll find yourself is in the house of God forever with him. It's when you're overwhelmed and stressed that you remember that regardless of maybe what you'd score on that test or what title you'd hold in the office or whether the business soars or, or it plummets and crashes instead, you remember all the while that you have a shepherd that loves you, that purchased you, that stands by you, and that promises he's got a plan for you. My friends, when your worst fears are realized, you still have a good shepherd who remains by your side. Again, quoting from the shepherd-turned-pastor Philip Keller in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He says it this way. He says, He is the owner who delights in his flock. For him there is no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction, than that of seeing his sheep contented, well-fed, safe, and flourishing under his care. This is indeed his very life. He gives all that he has to it. He literally lays himself out for those who are his. Remember, the quality of the sheep was completely contingent upon the character of their shepherd and the care of their shepherd. And Jesus is the one who had stood and said, and I am the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. 
don't overlook some of the, the, the beautiful things that are being communicated here. Like for Jesus to call himself your good shepherd, he's making a statement about proximity and about intimacy. About proximity that he's near you and intimacy that he wants to be connected with you. A pastor and author, Ray Ortland, he points out that the psalmist does not say that the Lord is our shepherd, does he? He always says he is my shepherd. The point here is not that he is our collective shepherd, although he is that. The point that David and God himself through David is wanting to make as you read this passage is that he is your personal, specific shepherd. It's Paul writing in Galatians 2.20, where he says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's John the Apostle who again and again refers to himself in the third person as the person whom Jesus loved. And John's not a narcissist. He's someone, though, who is floored by and shaped by the reality that Jesus loved him and that he hadn't deserved it or earned it. Listen, there's no we or our in Psalm 23. In fact, 16 times the psalmist will use singular and specific terms to describe God's great care for us. And it's neither selfish nor narcissistic. It's beautifully, personally comforting to us that he is my good shepherd. You see, if the psalmist had removed the word my and merely said, he is a shepherd, the Lord is even a good shepherd, well, then his statement would prove to be too vague to produce any gratitude. It'd be too vague to dispel any fear, too vague to lift a weary head today. But it's not what the psalmist is clearly boasting of and proclaiming here. He's saying the Lord is my shepherd. And my friends, the gospel of Jesus carries this beautiful promise of the nearness and attentiveness of God that you call him my good shepherd. And because David here knows that this is true, that he has the Lord as his shepherd, he's able to say that second half of the first verse that I shall not want. Because he's my shepherd, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who's loved me and rescued me, because he's my shepherd, the one responsible for my care, I shall not want. Now, these were not the words that were uttered off of the lips of someone who's never gone without. David is someone, if you know his story, and if you don't read it in First and Second Samuel this week, he experienced lack and abandonment, betrayal, homelessness, deep loneliness. It would be absurd if we assumed from his statement here that we would never experience a lack or a need because he did. The statement is not, though, about what David had or did not have. Rather, it's a statement of confidence about who had him. The statement is not about what he had or what he did not have when he's able to say, I shall not be in want. The statement is about who had David, who had him in his loving care and under his watchful eye. And because that was true and he was confident of it, he could say, I shall not live in want. David was under God's loving care, even when things were difficult, and even when he had every reason to feel disappointed or overwhelmed, David knew with confidence that there was one thing that no one could take from him, the loving and attentive care of his good shepherd. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Once a comparative term, isn't it? I mean, a poor man, he wants $10 in his hand. A rich man, he might want 10 million more, though, in his account. 
But what if our identity and security were no longer rooted in things that were shifting like the stock market? What if our identity and security were no longer rooted in things that are decaying like our beauty or things that are corroding like our car that we drive in or the home that we live in? What if our significance and our security was no longer wrapped in what we have, but in who has us? A wonderful good shepherd who loves us and promises to care for us. And he's proven that he will make good on that promise to care for us. He's proven it by demonstrating the depth of his love for us by going to a cross. The roots of contentment, the roots of this kind of faith needed to experience contentment to be able to echo what David says and say, I shall not be in want for us are found at the base of the cross. When we look that direction and go, if he loves me with that kind of love and care, remember God the infinite becoming finite, unbreakable becoming breakable and broken for me, Jesus on a cross, Well, then I can say with confidence, if he's my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Oh, hear his words again, verse two. I'm so contented and full that I lie down in the green pastures. Not that I'm frantically eating up as much as I can or ripping it out of the ground to store it up for later. No, I'm contented and at rest. Verse five, the second half of it, my cup is overflowing. I cannot contain all the blessings of having him as my shepherd. You see, life with God is what we experience and enjoy as the sheep of his pasture. And that is why we can say, I shall not want. David was content and at rest. And it's not his laziness that you're hearing. It's not his craziness either. It's the byproduct of his confidence in his shepherd's character and care that he is my good shepherd. It's the Apostle Paul who would later pen a similar sentiment while in prison, facing injustice and eventual capital punishment. He would write in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, saying this, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And Paul was so confident that anyone else could experience this same contentment, this same life without lack. He was confident that this was not just reserved for the select prestigious few, that he would write in Philippians 4, 19, saying, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul's saying you can live as satisfied and whole as I have done even in the worst of circumstances, as the psalmist David has done even going through hell of an experience because God himself has made himself available to you and will not withhold himself from you because he is your good shepherd. It's beautiful. You know what? You can close your Bible. I once heard someone reference J.R. Tolkien's book series, The Lord of the Rings, saying that the greatest lesson that comes out of the storyline, the narrative of The Lord of the Rings, is that the real key to life, like real life, that it's unlocked by what you are willing to let go of and lose. That when you think about the story, in the story to truly live, people had to be willing to give up the ring. And yes, the ring equated to power and significance in the world. They felt as though they were nothing without it. But it was an ugly trap that sucked the life out of each one that would hold it. The only way for them to truly live in a full way was to release the ring and give up the power that it gave them because the power that it had over them was so crippling and sucked them of any joy in their existence at all. 
Now think about Tolkien's point and tease this out with me just for a moment. The love of my family might bring me stability. Your career and social status, it might feel empowering. Your success and wealth, it might even feel fortifying for you. So what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves holding them so tightly, like with a vice script, for fear of losing them because they're precious to us. For with the loss of them, we fear that that we'd lose our very selves with them. So we hang on so tightly. Don't you see, though, that the very things that were once empowering to us now hold incredible power over us because we're terrified if we lost them, then we lose our sense of self. For so many of us, we look to our career or or we hang on to our wealth or, or we grip tightly to our family or we latch on to our social status like Gollum and his little ring. We latch on to so many different things hoping that they'll give us significance and security and then we find that they can't. And we find ourselves living the whole of our lives anxious and stressed and fearful and terrified of what we might look like if we lost it all. And in the process, if we're not careful, what we do is we find that we've crushed our partner under the weight of our own unhappiness. It's that we've suffocated our children with our desire to be needed, and when we didn't feel needed anymore, we smother them. And then we find that we've wrung every bit of joy out of our talents, our career, even our hobbies, because they no longer exist just for joy. They now exist to prove ourselves to other people, to win them over, to prove our value. And what we find is we've become skittish, anemic, unhealthy, lost sheep because we're placing ourselves under the care of terrible shepherds who cannot meet our deepest needs. Sometimes we have to stop and just realize, I mean, don't we see the fragile stability that we extract from these things is not worth the terrible, hollow existence of living under their care, of living under their values, of living pursuing those things as our chief goal and end in life. The words of the prophet Isaiah are true, that all of us like sheep, we've gone astray. All of us turn in our own way, every one of us. And when I find myself identifying as someone whose life is marked and defined by lack and by fear, I've learned to evaluate whether or not it's the Lord I'm looking to as my great shepherd and provider. And what I found is that the issue is not with him when I'm in that state. It's with me and my propensity to wander far from him. You see, the only way to be settled and whole and to echo the words of the psalmist that I shall not be in want is to find your place, your settled place in the good shepherd's care. And I'll tell you, religion is not your shepherd. Christianity is not your shepherd. This church is not your shepherd. A system is not your shepherd. A person is. Jesus is. And he's good. He's my good shepherd. Oh, but is he qualified? Oh, he's massive. And deeply personal. And that amazing, infinite God became finite to become breakable and broken for me. For him to be my shepherd, he first became my sacrificial lamb. For me to sit under his care, he first sat under the condemnation that I earned. And even when I'm not thinking of him, my good shepherd is attentive to me. 
You know, for many of us, we turn Psalm 23 into a wish and a prayer. It was never meant to be a wish or a prayer, though, was it? It sounds great to have God lead our lives. It sounds great to have confidence in his provision, to know that he's willing and able to provide for me. All of that sounds good. It's a wish and a prayer, but this is not meant to be read as a wish and a prayer. It's meant to be read and understood as a confident statement. But I can only echo these statements with confidence if I allow him both to be my Savior and my Lord. Psalm 95, verse 7 says, He is our God and we are the people He watches over. The flock under His care, if only you would listen to His voice today. Father, we pause here to look your direction, not towards a distant God, but towards a near friend. Not just a Savior, but one who deserves to be Lord. A shepherd who's willing to take care of skittish, messy, broken, silly sheep. Father, today we remember and we're in awe of your amazing power. That you created all of this and sustain it. But God, we're also amazed as, as we look towards your intimate love as it's displayed when you visited this place, this planet. And you suffered and died to redeem it and to restore it. And so, Jesus, today, for those of us who have followed you, chosen to follow you, today we remember what a gift we have in having a good shepherd. A gift that we never earned, something that you've freely given to us. Jesus, we just thank you today that you've given us this great gift. And God, I pray for people maybe who came here today who this is not their reality. Jesus, this is a foreign thing, but boy, it probably sounds good. To have God be a good shepherd, involved in the details of their lives, promising to lead them on the right path, to provide for them all that they'd need. Jesus, I thank you that they don't have to earn that great privilege of looking your direction, knowing that you're attentive to them. That this book does not present that we are trying to get the attention of a distant God. This book presents the story of the distant God who came near to demonstrate and prove his love for us. And God, I pray for anyone who feels like they are wandering today without a place to call their own, without a shepherd taking responsibility over them and promising to care for them, that they would look towards you right now, Jesus, and just simply say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, forgive me the times I've wandered far from you. Jesus, I want to belong in your house today and in that house of the Lord forever. So Jesus, forgive me and take me now, not just into your home, but into your flock. God, you're amazing. It's such a gift that we get to have you a part of our lives. Reorient our lives around that beautiful truth that you are our shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.